that the first area, the first arena where those who are aspiring or those who are in leadership, they must show themselves to be blameless is where? The home. The home is the testing ground. That's where the man is going to show if he's able to lead God's flock. Can he lead his little flock? And brothers and sisters, you would be surprised. You'd be surprised by the number of men who have failed homes, men whose families are falling apart, and yet they believe that they should be leading and teaching the church. The church does not make pastors, brothers and sisters. Seminaries do not make pastors. Christ makes pastors. The Holy Spirit makes overseers. And woe to a church that's appointing men whom Christ has not appointed. It's a joy to be with you. And I want to invite you to please open your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 1. What a joy it has been to walk through this beautiful letter. I want to invite you to stand if you can. Let's read verses 5 through 9. Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. Here's the word of the Lord. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or keep quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You may be seated and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. How important, how important is the character of, the, of one aspiring to be the president of our nation? Let's get out of the church and let's think about the president of the United States. How important is his private life? How important is his character? Will his character affect how he leads a nation? I remember reading an article a long time ago. The title was, Must the President Be a Moral Leader? And the article opens with the following words. It says, and that, that was no conservative. It was just an article from an unbelieving website. But it's very interesting that even them have some standards of morality. And it says, The best presidents, including figures such as Abraham Lincoln or George Washington, are celebrated not only as good leaders, but as good men. They embody not simply political skills, but personal virtue. Why, though, should anyone expect a president to demonstrate that sort of, that sort of virtue? If someone is good at, at the difficult job of political leadership, must they demonstrate exceptional moral character as well? And then the article goes on to, to show how the regular voter, voters like us or the scholars who study political ethics, they all disagree to the extent to which the president must demonstrate moral blamelessness or uprightness. And you, you remember that, especially for Christians, uh, in 2016, I believe, was probably one of the most important years in our lives thinking about that as we had Donald Trump and his moral character. And that caused a lot of Christians to think about that. Is it important? His personal life, his private life, a disaster, but will that affect? Does it affect the men we are voting? 
And the truth is, uh, biblically speaking, is that we cannot deny the there's always a connection between public service and private life. Public service and private sins. The character of a person will always affect how one acts and what he does. It's impossible to detach a person's private and personal life from what will take place in public. Somehow, somewhere, sometime that will be manifested. Think about that you, if you have a restaurant and you can hire the best cook, the best chef. But if he has a moral blame of being lazy, drunkenness, or other vices, that will affect your business. That one day will affect his work and your work. Or think about a judge. You can picture a judge, outstanding resume, the background, all the universities, the degrees. But the moral and the private life of that judge will affect how he judges. This applies at the home. Let's move to the sphere of home. How many homes are devastated by the character of a father or a mother? Because that affects how they lead the home. And the same truth is applied in the church. The character of those leading the church will deeply affect the life of the church. The private life of a leader will affect his public service. Sadly, many Christians today, especially where we live, give no care whatsoever to the character of those leading their churches. How many people you ask about their pastors? And as long as the pastors, the leaders are entertaining, they look cool, they are into the coaching, right? Now it's the coaching. They're helping people to fulfill their dreams. Then they could care less about the character of those leading the church. I have talked to many people who could care less. You ask them, so how are the men leading the church? Oh, they're funny, they're entertaining, they're great speakers. Churches with pulpit committees, when they need a pastor, and you have a pulpit committee, and they have no idea what they're looking for in a pastor. And Paul shows us, as we come to Titus 1, he shows us that the character of those leading the church is non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable. It does not matter how skillful, smart, talented, eloquent, knowledgeable of the Bible, how many followers he has in his Instagram. Do you have followers on Instagram or friends? Or I have no idea. Probably, right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> if he does not have a character that matches the biblical standard, he must be far, far, far away from any sort of leadership, pastoral ministry. And I want to remind you, it's easy to come to a topic like that, talking about pastors, and you say, oh, now it's time for me to sleep. I will never be a pastor. Don't aspire to be a pastor. And you close your eyes. But let me remind you that this list of qualifications here is for every single Christian. Every Christian is commanded by the Lord to be in a local church you're commanded by the Lord to obey, submit to your leaders, and you need to know who your leaders are. And I'm talking about who in relation to character, how they live. Are they the type of men that God is commanding me to submit and honor? Besides that, as we saw and we have been seeing, is that this list of qualifications for a pastor is actually apl applicable to every single Christian. Besides two or three qualifications here, all the other ones are attributes, character that every single Christian must aspire and possess in his life. Every single Christian is commanded to be hospitable, a lover of good. Amen? Gentle, not a drunkard. So, 
Be mindful of that. You have no excuse to sleep right now. This word, yes, is particular for leadership, but it's especially for all of us. Very, very applicable. So, as we come to Titus 1, remember we are coming to the body of the letter, starting verse 5. You can see there, Paul is telling us why he left Titus in Crete, and the reason is to put the churches in order. The Christian life is an orderly life, and the churches need to be put in order. So he left Titus, he left Titus there, and Titus, one of the ways that he's going to put the churches in order is by appointing biblically qualified leaders to lead the church. So we see that's not just order, but it's the type of men that are bringing order. So that's what verses 6 through, even to, I would say, 6 through 16 is going to be dealing is with the character of the men who are supposed to be putting the church in order. It's not just any man. It's just not order for order's sake. There are men who are going to be putting the church in order, but these men must have orderly lives. Orderly houses, orderly doctrines. So that's where we are as we come to chapter 1, uh, verses 5, 6 through 9 here. And remember that this list, is starting verse 6, is not an exhaustive list, meaning what? Everything is here. It's like a checklist. Okay, so I got all this one. It's not an exhaustive list. You have other aspects, other qualifications for leadership that are throughout these scriptures. But it's a very powerful one, I would say, these qualifications here are the, the basic. I would say that, that's ABCs, no negotiable, that must be in the lives of those who are leading the church. Amen? Those are no negotiables. Uh, and they, they are applicable to every single church. So if you go to a church in India, in Pakistan, make sure that these qualifications here will be applied to the life of those men. Oh, but you know what? You're in Africa and... The village, the men are used to marry three, four wives. That's their culture. That's not the biblical culture. The biblical command go back to creation. And then we need to work that. We're going to have to work through that. It's not going to be easy, but then we need to work through that. You have the men leading the church, uh, one wife, husband. All right? So those for everywhere, they're applicable and remember, this is not a Chinese food buffet where you can just pick and choose whatever qualification you like. Oh, I really like this, this, this person here. I really want this person to be a pastor. I know it's lacking these things here. But hey, he has the general soul. He has the spicy chicken here. No, 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 no. You, you got to have the whole thing, the whole package. Amen? So... As we go to our outline here, we are in part two. That's where we are, the blameless home, the pastor and his family. But let us just review from last Lord's Day what we saw. Uh, and it was, first, we open with the conditions to exercise the pastoral ministry. And remember that it starts with an if, if, conditions. The Lord has conditions for people to be in leadership. And we saw that the, the scriptures have a few basic conditions. The first one is that the pastor must be what? A man, male, born male, man. We also saw not only a man, not any man, but what, what, what else? The desire, the longing, not just any man. He must desire, he must long for that. And then we saw that being a man and desiring the office are not enough. God requires a type of character to lead his church. And we saw that the words, that there's one word that can summarize all the character qualifications that that word is blameless or above reproach. This word actually captures all the other qualifications. And you remember what blameless does not mean, right? Yeah, perfect immaturity. There is no perfectly mature pastor or man or woman. There is no sinless. 
So, so, so that's always a good thing. You know, when you're in question about, you can always say, okay, I know what that does not mean. And I know that blameless does not mean perfect, sinless. So that's always good and helpful. But you can say that blameless is the type of lifestyle that there are no blemishes or spot that's a pattern in that man's life. That he's marked by this certain blemish and spot, this ugly sin that's marking his life. That will be a blameless person. Elders will, pastors will continue to grow, mature, change, sin. But despite their imperfections, they are men worthy to be imitated and followed after. Remember Robert Yarbrough, he said, that was from last Sunday, he says, to be blameless as a pastoral candidate in Titus 1, therefore could have to do with living in the present in a way that is consistent with what the grace of the gospel confers on those who believe and receive it. Paul is likewise telling Titus that pastoral candidates must show forth strong signs of the presence of the divine grace that transforms their lives in godly direction. Amen? So the elders must be men who embody the sound doctrine they're teaching. Not hypocrites, men who embody what they're teaching. And these qualifications here are a lifestyle. Amen? It's not a rare thing. It is a lifestyle. They're marked by that. And remember that all Christians are called to be blameless. Amen? All Christians are called to be blameless. But the leadership is going to be the ones being a dis- publicly display what, what that looks like. I like what Ben Merkel says. He says, elders are not super spiritual people, but they're those who are mature in their faith and live constant, humble lives. His character has no glaring blemishes. That's a good definition of what a blameless person is. No glaring blemishes. And his godliness is even recognized by those who are not Christians. He's not perfect, but his life is characterized by what? Integrity, wholeness, right? So, we saw that the first area, the first arena where those who are aspiring or those who are in leadership, they must show themselves to be blameless is where? The home. The home is the testing ground. That's where the man is going to show if he's able to lead God's flock. Can he lead his little flock? Remember what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, then what? How will? How will he care for God's church? And brothers and sisters, you would be surprised. You'd be surprised by the number of men who have failed homes, men whose families are falling apart, and yet they believe that they should be leading and teaching the church. It is unbelievable. How many men I see with their homes falling apart, very, very damaged marriages, and yet they want to think that they should be teaching. And especially nowadays with social media, YouTube, they, they create their own channels, and suddenly they think that they are the teachers, the pastors. Not long ago, I remember a man coming to this church and completely broken family, completely broken family. His wife never came to church. He he told me the serious struggles in the marriage, the kids. And he came to me and he met with me one day and he said, "I, I, I... feel that I'm called by God to be teaching young men how to be real men, godly men. At first, he's like, are you kidding me? You are not a member of any church. You have nobody over you. You have no commitment to any church. Your family is falling apart. I told him these things. Your family is falling apart. You need to take care of your wife. You need to take care of your kids. And you're coming to me and say, what, you want to... Teach the young men how to be men. 
He never came back to church after that conversation. But that's what we see. And the first specific area of the home is the wife. The pastor and his wife. That's verse 6a. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. And we saw that last Lord's Day. I'm not going to spend time here. But he's talking about a man who is a one wife man. One wife in his eyes, in his brain, in his arms, in his heart. Amen? A man who loves his wife. Takes care of her, just like Christ takes care of his bride. Because that's what he's going to be showing to the church. That's what he's going to be doing to the church. And we know that blameless marriage has nothing to do with perfect marriage. There is no perfect marriage, but a blameless Marriage is one where you look at the pastor and see that despite his imperfections and weakness, he's striving, he's striving to have a marriage that glorifies the Lord. But now let's go where we have not been at, and that is the pastor and his children. We are covering the home, and now Paul moves from the wife to the children. Of course, if the elder has children, right? Right. And Paul writes to all the fathers in Ephesians chapter 6, to all the fathers, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's for all the fathers. But you see, the the, the pastors, the elders, the overseers, they they are the ones in the church displaying that, helping the church to see how they are to act. Towards their children. Fathers are commanded by the Lord to discipline, not to spoil their kids. We live in a generation, society, it's all about spoiling people. No, you're commanded to discipline. Let the grandparents stay spoiling. Right? (laughs) I hear the amen. (laughs) They're commanded to shepherd. Fathers are commanded to shepherd the hearts of their children. And that's the duty of the fathers to do. But the shepherds in the church, they will be showing, helping people to see in real life. So verse 6 says, I'm reading from the ESV. It says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are what? Believers. Hmm. This qualification here can be viewed from two different angles, depending on the translation and how you translate the sentence. Uh, there are those who, from one angle, they interpret this as the, the elders, the pastor, they're supposed to have children who are saved. It says believers here, therefore the children must be saved. And there are the other group that looks at this verse and says, no, he's not talking about saved, he's talking about faithful to their parents. And the reason is because of the Greek construction here. Paul says, Tekna eron pista. Children. And then you have having. And then you have this pista from pistos. And pistos is a word in Greek that can mean faith, believe. So sometimes pistos refers to believing, having faith. But on the other hand, pistos can also mean faithful. Trustworthy. So I think the King James Version, the Lexan, the Legacy, the Christian Standard Bible, I think they have a better translation when they say having faithful children. And look with me to Titus 1, verse 9. It says, about the elder, he must hold firm to what? That's the same Greek word. The faithful word. Or let's look at chapter 3. Uh, let me see. Yeah, verse 8. Paul says the saying is what? Yeah, that's the same pistos word. A faithful word. And I think if, especially if we go to First Timothy... 1 Timothy chapter 3, and there is a parallel account. I think that will help us understand what Paul is teaching us here. Because in 1 Timothy 3, 4, Paul says, referring to the elders, 
he, he must manage his household well with all dignity. And then what? Keeping his children what? Submissive. Not saved, but submissive. Paul wants the fathers to be fathers of children who are well managed. He's talking about fathers taking care of their household and the children are restrained, they're obedient, they're compliant, they're faithful to the parents' authority. That's what Paul is teaching here. And, the, and if you think about the, the flaws, if we interpret as the pastor, the elder must have believing children, we have a lot of difficulties with this interpretation, right? First, we're... How about the doctrine of predestination and sovereign election where God is the one who saves, not the parents? How about if the elder has another child while he's in ministry? Then what? He needs to step down until the kid shows himself to be saved? So can any imagine? Like every time we had a child, I had to step down and like, all right, now we need to wait. Okay, oh yeah, now this is saying, how are you going to tell if the child is saved? So, I like what Alexander Straw says. He says, those who interpret this qualification to mean that an elder must have believing Christian children place an impossible burden upon the father. Even the best Christian fathers cannot guarantee that their children will believe. Salvation is a supernatural act of God. God, not good parents, although they are certainly used of God, God ultimately brings salvation. Amen? So, I think that's uh, a better way to translate is children who are faithful to the parents, children who are submissive, obedient, they are under the authority. And I think, look at verse 6. Verse 6, as Paul continues, I believe he's explaining what it means for the children to be pistos. Faithful, when he says, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. There is the question also, okay, how about these children? Is that just children under your authority or your children who already left the home? I like what one commentary says. It says, we should not hold leaders as accountable for the actions of independent adult children as we do for children under their care and supervision. And second, the word for children is plural. We are not necessarily looking at the beliefs and actions of one child, but the character of the family as a whole. So Paul tells us here that as you're looking at the, the family of the pastor, the elder, as you're looking at their children, they cannot be open to the charge. That's very important Meaning, if you bring these kids to a legal court, it's undeniable that they're wild. <laughs> the proof is all over the place. That's what Paul is saying. And first thing he talks about, uh, the, the ESV has debauchery. Uh, the, the, I like the NIV, says, not open to the charge of being wild. We saw this word, asotia. We saw when you were looking at Luke 15, when you were going through the series on forgiveness. The same word is used for the, the, the son, the wild son who runs away. Uh, the Greek speaks of a behavior of which shows lack of concern or thought for the consequences of an action. Senseless deeds, reckless. It refers to a disorderly life. And that fits with the context of putting the churches in order and the pastor being a man who can keep things in order. Cannot have disorderly household. The next word that he uses, insubordination, refers to refusing submission to authority, undisciplined, disobedient, rebellious. Philip Toner, he says that this type of disobedience, that is the type of disobedience that has reached the level of flagrant disregard for the Father's authority. It's interesting that Paul used the same Greek word in chapter 1, look at verse 10. Referring to the false teachers. 
For there are many who are what? Yes. Meaning what? They reject the authority of God-given leaders. And that's the type of life that these children believe in. Rejecting. They don't care. They are autonomous. So the church cannot have men in leadership who resemble... You remember Eli in the Old Testament. And he had two sons. Ophini and Phineas. The, the church cannot have this type of leaders. Men who have no control over the home, of, over the kids. The kids remind me last night of Mr. Olson in Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> That's not the type of man in leadership, right? <laughs> and it's true because when you watch that... <laughs> And you're always, why don't you do something? You're the man of the house. Do something, Mr. Olsen. And the rare times that he does something, we all cheer. Like, yes, finally. Right? No, you cannot have this type of man in the leadership of the church. And Paul is speaking of a pattern of life, not occasional rebellion like most kids act for a little while. Right? And the... Paul doesn't say, oh, if the kids are in rebellion for nine months and three weeks. Now, the church will have to have wisdom. The church as a whole should come and say, okay, I think now it's time for you to take care of the kids. Right? So, uh, so the church is commanded to watch the family of those in leadership. To see the evidence of the gospel in that family. The leadership of his family becomes a tangible proof that he's either fit or unfit to lead God's church. So you see men who cannot lead their homes. They have one, two, maybe three children, and the kids run the show. And if you cannot shepherd four people, five people in your little flock, how do you think you're going to lead a church? <laughs> If you cannot lead your wife in a few little ones, how are you going to lead 30, 50, 60, 90, 200 people? Adult ones. <laughs> so instead of looking like the world, the family of those in leadership are supposed, supposed to look like a gospel-empowered home. Of course, it's imperfect. But you see the gospel there. If this man who aspires to be a pastor is able to shepherd his family well, then there are strong signs that he will be able to lead the church. Of course, just leading the home is not enough. There's more we're going to see. But that's a very important ground. There must be a holy attraction, not perfection, about the families of those who lead how they are gospel-saturated, gospel-empowered parents, and especially the man, not absent. He's there. And those who spend time with me and my family know very well we fall very, very short of any sort of perfection, very imperfect family. It's just by God's grace, despite all my imperfections, my weakness is an is a effort is a holy ambition and determination to honor God with my family. And let me remind you, as we are talking about kids and pastoral ministry, let me remind you that pastors' kids, they need salvation just like any other kids. They're not holier than other ones. PKs, they need a lot of prayer. PKs need a lot of prayer. The pressure of the ministry, they see things, they're involved with things. The pain, the hurt, the blessings. Like any other children, they can be wild, crazy at times. Oh, I can't believe Paul pushed Judah. They're little boys. <laughs> right? Little boys do little boy things, girls. You know, it's like... It, sometimes it's so easy for us to create an unbiblical standard where it's like there are kids 
We just need to see, if the, especially the father, if he is shepherding the kids. Right? Amen? I like what Hills and Chapel, they write, they say, by encouraging us to examine the faithfulness of all of all our pot- potential leaders' children and offer instance the temporary mistakes or commendations of one child in a family of five, the apostle is charging us to take stock of the home as a whole. We are to make an assessment of leadership appropriateness on the basis of overall patterns, not exceptions. The parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3 enriches our understanding of this standard. There, Paul says that an elder should manage his own family well. And he says, how could this be determined if there were never any struggles in the family? Good leadership is not determined in the absence of difficulty, but in the prudent discipline and handling of problems when difficulties come. Patterns of disbelief and unruliness in a man's household should cause questions about his aptitude for church leadership. But occasional or exceptional difficulties well handled should not disqualify. Rather, they are precisely what do qualify. And my, my request is that you pray. Pray for me, my marriage, my family, the leaders, as we have more leaders in this church, more pastors, elders. If you're not of this church, pray for your pastor's family, for his children. Amen. We need prayer. And before we finish here, just, let me, just remind, especially the men here, that yes, the, the pastors are supposed to be an example and a standard, but all men, all men who are married, they are commanded to oversee and shepherd their homes, their wives and their children. Do not look only to the pastor. Look at your own heart. As a man, as a married man, have I been shepherded in my own heart, first of all? Have I been shepherded in my home? Have I been shepherding my wife? Have I been shepherding my children? Because you might never be called to be a shepherd in the church, but you are called, commanded to shepherd your heart and your family. And this is not the pastor's duty. It's not my jurisdiction. I have no jurisdiction in shepherding your children and your wife outside the church. That's the man's duty. And what Christ commands you, brothers, what Christ commands you, he empowers you to do. He empowers you. So run to the throne of grace. Run, run to the throne of grace and you will find help in Christ. Amen? So let's move to verse 7. It's about time here. You need to move. Time is flying. Verse 7 and 8. Let's start the the blameless conduct. So you're moving out of the home now to the the heart and the character of the one leading the church. And that's covering verses 7 through 8. And Paul is going to give a list of vices, blemishes, corruptions that cannot be. And then a list of virtues, graces that must be in the ones leading the church. So look at verse 7. For, my grammar scholars here, what does the word for imply? For, not the number four. Look at, in your Bibles, for. That's a reason, right? He's giving a reason. So Paul is giving the reason here why the elders must be blameless. And the reason is very simple. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be blameless. Very simple, because he's God's steward. Why must he be blameless? Because he's God's servant. And he must resemble the God who possesses him. And notice that there is a change now from elders to what? Overseer. Wait a second, is that a new office? Especially now it's, in, it's a singular overseer. He was talking about elders in the plural. So some denominations, they come here and they say, oh, so that's a different office. So that's why you have the Episcopalian church, where you have the bishop as a, a different type of office over the church. 
But we know, biblically speaking, the elder, pastor, and overseer, they're all the, refer to the same office. Amen? So there are different words, elder, overseer, pastor. There are different words for the same office. And one example is from Acts. So in Acts chapter 20, we hear Paul, Luke is writing. He says, now from Miletus... And one of her kids were reading last night. He said, my lattice. <laughs> my lattice. <laughs> he sent to, to Ephesus and called the who? The elders, the presbyteros, the elders of the church to come. So here are the elders. And look how Paul is going to tell the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the what? Implying that they are pastors. The flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you a overseer. Elders, they're overseers. And then he used the verb poimino from poimonel to shepherd, to pastor the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So you have the elder who is an overseer who is a pastor. Ben Merkel, he writes... The term presbyteros conveyed the idea of a wise, mature leader who was honored and respected by those of the community. The term episkopos spoke more of the work of the individual whose duty was to uh, oversee and protect those under his care. And that's a beautiful word, overseer, episkopos. We do not use, we don't talk about pastors or elders anymore as overseers, right? But it's a beautiful word. Uh, especially think about the King James, they translated Episcopos as bishop. And you kind of have that thing with bishop, right? <laughs> oh, my name is Bishop Gustavo. You kind of like bishop, you know, there's that thing with, think about the Anglican, the Episcopalian church, Episcopos, Episcopalian church. They are just kind of adapting the Roman Catholic view of church government, just changing a little bit, but same thing. But sadly, the, the Christians use very little this terminology of overseer. And it's a beautiful word, rich, rich. You go to the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and you see how episkopos is used for different types of leadership. So we have some military guys who are called episkopos. Military. And also religious people are called episkopos. So if you're taking notes, in Numbers 4.16... Eliezer, the, the son of Aaron, Numbers 4.16, he's placed over the tabernacle as an episkopos. So he's in charge of the tabernacle and he's called an overseer, episkopos. So one Greek lexicon defines episkopos, and it's important for us to think about, we need to understand what these words imply to understand the pastoral ministry. Sometimes you start creating expectations of pastors that, are not theirs. So the episcopos, one who has the responsibility of safeguarding or seeing to it that something is done in the correct way, a guardian. And it says in the Greek or Roman world, episcopos frequently refers to one who has a definite function or fixed office of guardianship and related activity within a group. That's what episcopos, an overseer is. Another scholar says they, they were, the episcopos, the overseers, they were, in some sense, to govern, to administer, to oversee the affairs, both materi material and spiritual of the community. The idea of supervision or protective care, that's a beautiful word, protective care, is still lay at the heart of the meaning of episcopos, overseer, even after centuries of usage. And if you go back to the Old Testament, the ultimate the ultimate overseer is whom? The Lord. In the Old Testament, the Lord God. He's the one who oversees his people. He is, we could say, he is the true archbishop. But then you move to the New Testament, and we are told by Peter that Jesus is the episcopos of our souls. So Peter says... For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to whom? The pastor. 
And then he says, the pastor and episcopos. Do you see how these titles that the church leadership obtain are coming from the one who is the perfect pastor, the perfect overseer? We are under shepherds. We are under overseers. He is the perfect, the greatest one. And you see how the work of a pastor and an overseer are, are, are deeply connected. The pastors in the church are called to oversee because they are commanded by Jesus to watch over the flock. While some are sleeping, while some are having fun, the overseers are watching, keeping watch over the flock. And look what Paul tells us. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which, who? The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The church does not make pastors, brothers and sisters. Seminaries do not make pastors. Christ makes pastors. The Holy Spirit makes overseers. And woe to a church that's appointing men whom Christ has not appointed. A church that places men in leadership who do not fit Christ's command. A church that places men in leadership whom the Holy Spirit has not appointed is under serious condemnation. The promise of the new covenant is that the Lord would place shepherds after his own heart over his people. So an overseer, and we are, we are a congregational church. We believe that the church has authority, the, the body has authority in very specific areas. And there is also the leadership, the overseers who guide the church, who lead the church, govern the church. Christ, these men, are, they have Christ-given authority to oversee the church, watching over the doctrine of the church, the activities of the church, the books that people are reading in the church. I have had people get upset with me because, gently, I told that person that, honestly, this book, I really don't want this book passing around in our church. I don't think it has sound doctrine. So I would rather that you'd not be endorsing this type of book. It's our duty to watch over the Bible studies. What type of Bible studies taking place? What are people teaching? It's mind-boggling when I, I hear about churches where the pastors have no idea what they're teaching their small groups. Like, ah. Oh. And some of you were in churches like that, and you were teaching Reform doctrine in a very bad church, and for me, it makes no sense. How can that happen? Because there's no oversight. There's no oversight. And I'm not saying bad about you. I'm saying bad about the leaders who would just allow that and not know what's going on. And it's important to know what the duties are. We're shepherds, overseers, watching over, especially the doctrine of the church. Because what happens is people have unbiblical expectations for their pastors, overseers, and when these unbiblical expectations are not met, they become frustrated. So know what they're supposed to be doing. And notice also another way that Paul used to describe those in leadership. He calls them God's steward. God's steward. That's a beautiful word. We don't use steward anymore. He used to use, especially for those, right? The stewardess, those who were working inside the airplane, serving people. But now we hardly ever use the word steward. And it's a beautiful word coming from the Greek oikonomos. Oikos, house, nomos, uh, law, Roots, the one who is helping the house to be governed. The Greek word oikonomos speaks of one who has the authority and responsibility for something. One who is in charge of, one who is responsible for, or administrator, manager. Not the owner. 
right? You're not the owner. You're administrating something for somebody else. Aida Spencer, she says, the owner entrusted the management of affairs to the oikonomos, the steward, the oversight of the property, receiving and paying bills, planning expenditures, apportioning food and overseeing minors. They had to be trustworthy. So, for example, Erastus was a city manager, oikonomos, Romans 16, 23. Overseers or elders were managers of church life. The owner of the property is who? God. We are managers, not owners. And during the first century, it's important to understand that during the first century, a great number of stewards were slaves. So you had a, a, a large group of slaves, and you'd look at these slaves, and you'd appoint some slaves to be a manager, a steward. And you'd have one slave, so you have a bunch of slaves, and I appoint Jeff as another slave to manage the other slaves. That's the church. We're always slaves of God, bought by the same blood. So the word steward is, a, is beautiful because it captures the, conce- the, the two concepts of servanthood and leadership. It's beautiful. The marks of true Christian leadership is slavery, servanthood, and the same time authority, governance. So the steward had some authority. He had power from the owner to exercise government over his property. And Jesus talks a lot about stewards. So, for example, Luke 12, 42. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise what? steward, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Luke 12, right there. The main mark, the main characteristic of a steward was faithfulness. The steward had to be what? Faithful to whom? The master, the owner, the boss. The mark of a true steward is faithfulness. So Paul says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and what? Stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful. And that goes, I, I remember I said last Sunday, that blameless is connected to faithfulness in the Old Testament. A life of devotion to the Lord. So it's beautiful. We are God's stewards. For an overseer as God's stewards. Huh. Some churches think that they are the lords over the pastor. I have seen congregations where they think that they are the boss of the pastor. They can tell the pastor what to do. Pastors, elders, overseers, they're God's stewards, not the churches. First of all, God's stewards. We live for the church, but our obedience is to the Lord. He's our Lord. At the same time, we have seen men who think that they own the church. So we have seen pastors who think that the church is theirs. The church is not the pastors. We are stewards of the king. So he says for an overseer, because God's steward must be what? Blameless. Once again, he repeats that word. Blameless because he belongs to God, because he's representing his God, because he's an official representative of his God, he must be blameless. Without massive blemishes and things that's like, oh, that's ugly. No. So the church is different from every other place. You see, you have CEOs. Some of you here have CEOs, bosses, managers. We have presidents, governors, and kings who govern and rule, they're elected, they're placed there with all sorts of bad character and sinful vices. Not in the church, that cannot be. That cannot be. Amen? And there's something for you too. 
Because it's easy for us to think about, oh, yes, just the pastors. No, 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 no. Yes, pastors, leaders are stewards of the leadership of the church. They have this gift, but quickly, please, because the time is flying. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, and we finish here. 1 Peter 4.10. Look at verse 9. We are going to see that next Lord's Day. Probably show hospitality. It's a command to all the Christians in the church. But look at verse 10. As each one. Each one of you, brothers and sisters. Each one of you. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as what? Good stewards of God's manifold grace. All of you Christians here are stewards. God has given you gifts. He has entrusted you with things that you must show yourself to be faithful. Some women have children. Other women teach children. Some of you are teachers. You have been entrusted to care of little ones. Have you been faithful as God's stewards? Fathers, you are stewards of your family. It's God's family that he has entrusted you to take care. Your home, it's not your own. You think your home is yours? It's the Lord's. And when he feels like taking away, he will take away. And there's nothing you can do to prevent him. Your home belongs to God. It's a gift entrusted to you. Your time is not your own. Because when he feels like he just take you out of here. And your time is over. Your body is not your own. Belongs to the Lord. So let me ask you. How have you been as a steward of God? Will, we, will he find you faithful? With the things that he has gifted you with. Think about the local church. As Peter says. Christ has given each one of you gifts to serve the body. Have you been faithful with your gift? Will he find you faithful using your gift that Christ has given you? So let me ask you, how are you serving the church? How is your home? How is your heart? How is the management of your time? How have you been managing all the good gifts that God has entrusted you with? Will you hear the words, Oh, my steward, well done. You have been a good and faithful slave over the things that I have entrusted you with. Some people might think, wow, that's heavy. In one sense, it is heavy. It's heavy because the gospel is so beautiful, so powerful, that we who once were slaves of sin, we who once were enemies of God, now God loves us so much that He calls us His stewards. So it should be heavy. Because the gospel is so glorious, so beautiful, so powerful, that saves us from the kingdom of darkness, people who deserve wrath, and now brings into the family of God. And God in His love gives us gifts. He entrusts us with different gifts. That's beautiful. That's the gospel. We who had nothing now have a bunch of things. I'm, as a pastor, steward of God, simply a manager of his house, a slave just like you, purchased by his blood and by his own initiative and grace. And trust me, with the care of a flock. But the same gospel that makes some men stewards as leaders in the church, that same gospel makes all of you stewards of God's manifold grace. And that same gospel that saved you empowers you to be a better steward. Amen? So it's, it's not time for desperation. It's time, literally, for sanctification. Run to Christ. Look at your life. It's time for examination. 
Have I been a faithful steward? Have I been faithful in what God has entrusted me with? Will he find me faithful? And after the examination, run to his arms. His arms are wide open, full of pity and power and mercy, ready to forgive and restore and empower you to be a better steward. Amen? So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your kindness in giving us your word. Your word is indeed beautiful. Your word is indeed uh, a sword that's very sharp. And at the same time, your word is like honey. Brings joy. It kills us and it brings us to life again. Oh Lord, help us. I pray for this church. I pray for myself, Lord. How we need your mercy. Oh Lord, who is able? Who is able to fulfill these tasks? No one apart from your grace, Lord. Would you please guard us, protect us, surround us. Help us to be better stewards, Lord. You have been so gracious to us, so patient. Help us to be good managers of what you have given us. We want to glorify you. We want to resemble you better to others around us. So please help us, Lord. Thank you for saving us. And those who do not know you, I pray that they would run to Jesus this morning and find the mercy, the mercy that they need in the arms of Christ. Thank you for making us stewards of your kingdom. 